0: Well, in the course of this seminar, I'm going to share with you the story of how Luther helped me to become a Seventh-day Adventist. I've been thinking about this seminar for a long time. When I realized that this year was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I was eager to do a seminar on that. And so I started a year ago getting ready for this, doing a lot of reading, thinking, praying. And I actually turned some of this into sermons and preached them in the church there. But I have to confess I have mixed feelings this morning as we get started. Because it's such a vast subject The Reformation wasn't just an event, the Reformation actually covered more than two centuries, although it began in 1517. It was more of an advancement of truth, a progression of truth, than an event. And I was so happy to discover, as I was uh, preparing for this, this statement by Ellen White in The Great Controversy. Because since I became acquainted with the spirit of prophecy, I'm always amazed at how Ellen White was able to find the words that captured the spiritual essence, not just the theology or the truth, but the spiritual essence. And she certainly did it in this statement Listen, at Wittenberg, a light was kindled whose rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth, and which was to increase in brightness to the close of time. The reason this is so significant a statement is because there are people saying today that the Reformation is over. And not only that, that it was a mistake. And we'll get into more of that later. Pardon? That's great controversy. Page 126. And by the way, I would recommend highly this book, The Reformation and the Advent Movement, by W.L. Emerson. I don't know this person. I don't know if they would have it. It's published by Orion Publishing. P.O. Box 449 (coughs) Ukiah, UKIAH, California, 95482. Pardon? The Reformation and the Advent Movement. It's an excellent book. W. L. Emerson. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin our study this morning of the Reformation and its meaning for our time, we pray for the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us the kind of enthusiasm that the early reformers had so that we can finish the work and the mission that you have given to the Remnant Church, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I want to read a quote from here, just to get started. The author says, By the middle of the 18th century, the New World had received representatives not only of the major Reformation churches, Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican, but had also been seeded with all the rediscovered truths brought by the evangelicals seeking freedom of worship that had been denied them in Britain and on the continent. At the time America became independent, says A.M. Schlesinger, in his book, The Birth of the Nation, quote, America presented the greatest diversity of beliefs of any land on earth. The reason, he said, was not far to seek. From the beginning of the 16th century to the middle of the 17th, the old world had been rent with theological dissension and the vast transatlantic continent offered a natural refuge for the persecuted minorities. To the careful he's talking about this continent here. To the careful student of the ongoing reformation that single thread is discernible in the fact that while many tares were sown among the wheat, all the great bible truths of the faith which was once delivered to the saints including many neglected or suppressed by the compromising protestant state churches of europe were able to find good ground in the american wilderness there they could germinate grow and mature, awaiting the appointed time when they would be brought together in the final phase of the everlasting gospel, God's last message of mercy to a perishing world. Of all the providences in the rise and development of the United States, this surely was the greatest in the grand design. Started on page 177 and went to 178. In other words, he's right. God set it up because he knew what was going to happen and he brought the Seventh day Adventist movement into existence in the middle of the 18th or the 19th century in preparation for today. All right, I want to dedicate this seminar to the late Dr. Walter J. Kukkonen, Lutheran theologian and my spiritual mentor and friend. He was my Elihu who said to Job, In Job 33, verse 8, and 34, verse 3, Elihu said to Job, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. And also, he said, The ear tests words as the palate tastes food. When I was in the midst of my spiritual crisis back in the late 60s, he had been my Lutheran Seminary professor and I needed some spiritual counseling and help. So I called him up and I briefly explained what was happening and he said, come on down and visit And so I drove down to Homewood, Illinois, which is right near Chicago. And I spent two days with him, explaining to him what was happening. My wife had become a Seventh-day Adventist. My ministry was falling apart. I didn't know what to do. He sat and listened to me for two days. He didn't say a word. And his eyes never left my face. When I was finished, I had nothing more to say. I just stopped talking and I waited. What I was expecting, I did not hear. I expected this Lutheran theologian to tell me, watch out for those people, they're a bunch of heretics. They're a sect not what I heard I waited finally he said Ray you need to ask God what he's trying to say to you he didn't respond to my dilemma on the intellectual level He responded on the spiritual level, on the level of the heart. He was a true spiritual friend and continued to be my friend until he died just a couple of years ago. Because of those words of his, that's why I said he was like my Elihu, I got in my car, instead of driving back home to Bessemer, Michigan, I drove to and Springs. I had a Volkswagen camper that I was driving at that time, and I parked in the seminary parking lot. Nobody know, knew who I was. I went in, and I, I just wanted to meet some people and get kind of a flavor. I spent a day there, talked to a few of the seminary professors, and I drove home and the story began to unfold. I'll share bits and pieces as we go along. But I want to dedicate this to Dr. Walter Cookman Because without his words, which I believe God gave him to say to me, He spoke on the level where my need was the greatest. And those words of his, in effect, gave me the freedom, virtually the permission, because he was my respected professor, to pursue this and find out what's really going on. Is God trying to say something to me? And as the whole process developed, I began to realize that because I wouldn't listen to my wife, I had to do this on my own. <laughs> now, you can understand that. I had a lot of people <laughs> to answer to. And I knew that eventually, you know, people would say, Oh, he just became an Adventist because his wife did it, see. But he opened the way. And I thank God for it. And when My my last conversation with him two years ago was over the phone. I called him. He was living in Minneapolis by that time. I called him to see how he was doing, and we had a long conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he said, Ray, I have concluded that this, he was speaking of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America that he was a part of, I have concluded that this is a Christless church. Wow. And we hung up, and can you imagine how I was thinking? I've got to go down to Minneapolis and sit at his feet again and find out what he meant by that. So I was making plans to do it. I called him on a Sunday, the following Thursday morning, early, his son called me and he said, my dad died this morning. And he said, he told me he wants you to preach at his funeral. Wow. I had two days to prepare. And my wife and I drove down to DeKalb, Illinois, for his funeral. Here in a big church, Lutheran church, I had a congregation of Lutheran people. Seventh-day Adventist preacher. Preacher. And I told him what he had said over the phone. And I suggested that you might want to think about that. Try to figure out what he meant. Well, if the church that he was a part of, which was the tradition of the Reformation, going back to Luther, was in that kind of a situation. How did that happen? The the reason it has happened is because sola scriptura has been abandoned by a lot of Protestantism. It's been going on for decades. When the word is abandoned, everything is lost. Ellen White wrote, God will have, will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms, changes. She goes on, the opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the decrees or decisions of ecclesiastical councils as numerous and discordant are the churches which they represent. The voice of the majority, not one nor all of these, should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord in its support. Great Controversy 595. Those kind of words rang bells in me. And John 1, 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. As long as the light shines, The darkness does not and cannot overcome it. If you turn the light on in a pitch dark room, it's what I had to do when I came in here. The darkness is dispelled. But what happens if you turn the light out? It's dark again. Back in the 1960s, I was attending a meeting of Lutheran pastors in the Upper Peninsula. And one of the subjects that was being discussed was the interpretation and the authority of the Word of God, the Bible. And a recent seminary graduate who graduated from the same Lutheran seminary that I did back in, Chi- in Chicago, he shook his finger in my face. His finger was right here by in front of my nose. And vehemently he said, the time is soon coming when people like you will not be allowed in the Lutheran ministry. Now, that event, together with with the Vacation Bible School materials for the Lutheran Church that we were a part of that year, uh, which was, by by the way, on evolution, not creation. My wife was was the VBS superintendent for that summer, and she ordered the materials. When they came, she unpacked them and went through them, and she came... To my, to my study and she said, we can't teach this. And I said, why not? She said, it's evolution, it's not creation. So I looked at it, sure enough, and I shipped it all back and sent a letter and told them why to the publisher. And that very same summer, the local Seventh-day Adventist church, VBS material, was on creation and the lady that had become my wife's friend by then Bertha Bigford shared that with my wife and she told, she showed told it to me it was, it was beautiful it was on creation imagine that coincidence no. you've got to be kidding That was, uh, I think, 68, somewhere in there. Can't remember exactly. 67, 68. Now, what this illustrates is that the authority of the Word of God, the Bible, is still the central issue for the Christian church. Just like it was 500 years ago in the 16th century. Same issue. Listen to this one of my lutheran friends we still see each other i usually stop at their, we usually stop at their place on our way home from camp meeting he sent me the latest biography of luther it's titled martin luther visionary reformer the author's name is scott h hendricks H-E-N-D-R-I-X. It was published in 2015. I'm going to quote what he says on page 133. He says, quote, The cause, speaking of the Reformation, the cause turned out to be momentous in a way neither Luther nor Staupitz Staupitz was the, the rector or whatever they call it of the Augustinian monastery that Luther was uh, a part of. It turned out to be momentous in a, in a way that neither Luther nor Staupitz could imagine. A cosmic contest between Christ and the devil to be settled on the last day. How about that? Now let me ask you, and this is the, the uh, theme of our presentation today, what is the mission of the church anyway? Jesus, speaking to his disciples, made it very clear Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian I want to remind you, you know, we got some folks in our midst that are causing trouble here. Jesus himself said, Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go where? Everywhere. All nations everywhere in this world and do what make disciples what is a disciple a follower of Jesus how how to make disciples teaching and baptizing teaching what everything he has commanded. And when he said, I, everything I have commanded, was he referring to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes. And Paul put it like this. If you were at the ordination service, Sabbath afternoon, you heard this. It's been read at both of my ordinations. I've been ordained twice. I keep reminding the brethren about that. I keep telling them because I was ordained twice, I need double salary and double vacation. You know what they say? No, it doesn't mean that. It means double work. Anyway, he says, Second Timothy 4, verse 1, he's writing, Paul is writing, the apostle Paul is writing to this young preacher, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season when things are going good and when they're going bad. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching or doctrine but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is what I think. I'm going to look for a teacher, a preacher, who believes what I think, not what the Word says. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now I used to wonder, it says exhort and rebuke, and I used to think it's, it's not in my nature to rebuke people. But that's what it tells me I have to do. So I, how do you do that? Well, he's already given me the answer. Preach the word. The word does the rebuking, not the preacher. The power is in the word. It's not in the preacher. The preacher's job is simply to be faithful to the Word and let the Word do its work. That's been ringing in my ears since my first ordination. The power is in the Word. Preach the Word. in patience, and in love. Nothing else. That's our duty. That's our calling. That's our ministry. Elder Gallimore made that clear Sabbath afternoon. That's our mission. No matter what. Whether it's popular or not, whether it fits in with current culture or not, that's our mission. And to do it consistently, without deviation, without compromise of biblical principles, for the sake of peace? Why? I asked myself, and I found the answer in the Spirit of Prophecy. Review and Herald, July 24, 1894. That's our mission because, as she says, we, quote, must. That's an imperative, no choice, got to do it, because we must Often proclaim a message that is directly in opposition to the people's sins, prejudices, and customs. You can substitute the word culture of the times. Unquote. This Review Herald, 1894. Review and Herald. July 24, 1894. July 24. 24. Now why in the context of this solemn charge that Paul makes does he say, as for you endure suffering? It's because there is a price to pay for faithfulness to God's word. And we have to be as willing as the reformers of the 16th century were to pay that price. There's a price to pay for faithfulness to God's will, to his truth. Ellen White says it is, quote, too costly to make peace with the world by giving up the principles of truth. Let the followers of Christ settle it in their minds that they will never compromise truth, never yield one iota of principle for the favor of the world. Same source. You see, friends, compromising the word is not the way to finish the work. Did Paul himself pay that price? Let him tell the story. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting with verse 24, First, Second Corinthians 11, 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, listen to this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, as we look at the mission of the church, and what I, there's an awful lot that we could talk about, but we can't do it in one week, five hours. You take a whole course on this and still not cover everything. But what I want to emphasize is the meaning of the Reformation for us today. And as we look at the mission of the church and the times in which we live, we need to be confident that the church may appear as about to fall. This is from Ellen White again, but it does not fall. It remains. None but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and true. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 380. Now she says that the church will remain true to the Word of God. I'm so glad. I believe that. That's why I'm here today, talking to you about this. But that will not happen without the word of our testimony yours and mine because as she says it's the very struggle for biblical faith that makes the church strong she says in the same same source the remnant that purified their souls by obeying the truth, gather strength from the trying process. I believe we're in the midst of a crisis now. We'll talk more about that on Friday. We're in the midst of a crisis now. But I believe that God is testing his remnant church. I'm, I believe he's allowing us to go through this difficult crisis to do exactly what she says. To purify our souls by obeying the truth and in the process we'll gather strength. I think that's what the Lord has in mind. Today we're hearing appeals for unity. Almost every denominational publication that you pick up has articles about unity. And we all know that unity is essential in order to finish the mission that we have been given. Now let me borrow a metaphor of It comes from a statement that was made by one of our major church administrators. I'm going to borrow a metaphor from him and say that, yes, we have to sing in harmony. That is to say, in agreeing in thought and action. But in order to sing in harmony, we have to sing in unison. which means to sing the same song. We can't be singing different songs with the same sound and the same pitch, with our eyes fixed on the director, capital D, and on the score as it was written, composed. One of the problems I have with, a lot of contemporary, even church music, is that the performers change the music. It doesn't sound like what the author or the composer wrote. You understand what I'm saying? I hear it and I say, that doesn't sound like, you know, what the author wrote, composed. You see, no choir can sing in harmony or in unison apart from unity if each member of the choir or segment such as the tenors or the sopranos does not sing the same music. The result is discord and disharmony. So in order to sing in unison we have to sing the same music. Now, any student of the Reformation knows that Martin Luther was heavily influenced by the letters of Paul, especially Romans and Galatians. And that he drew theological, doctrinal knowledge from those letters, as well as personal faith, and the kind of courage and spiritual strength that is needed at a time of crisis. And it was a time of developing crisis, as we'll see, because Luther wasn't the only one. There was Reformation stuff going on long before he ever appeared. But the words of Paul changed Luther himself and through him they changed the course of history and the course of the world you and I would not even be here today preaching teaching believing the gospel of salvation by grace through faith if it was not for the words of Paul words that were heard 500 years ago by a simple monk. By the way, Luther's father wanted him to become an attorney. But he was religiously minded. He was concerned about his salvation. And he decided to become a monk. Anyway, Paul's words were heard by that simple monk who was sincerely trying to do everything that he thought was necessary to be accepted by god even to the point of self-flagellation he would beat himself with a whip but his efforts didn't satisfy he never found the assurance of salvation that he wanted so desperately and and needed until he heard Romans 3:24, that he was justified by his God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Those very words changed Luther and the course of history. In Latin, it's called sola gratia, by grace alone. But before he could hear that, he had to hear something else. He called it sola scriptura, the Bible alone, as the source of truth for life for faith and life. Everything doctrinal and everything experiential or existential, if you want to use that word, depends on and derives from sola scriptura. But the medieval church never accepted that. Insisting that the traditions and the power of the bishops were equal to, if not preeminent, to Scripture. In other words, the authority of the church was gradually being raised above that of the Word of God. Now, 500 years after Luther, some Protestants are giving lip service to Sola Scriptura. And a lot of them even abandoning it altogether in favor of something called felt needs. You heard that? and also the pressures and the demands of contemporary culture. And it's there, the pressure is getting heavier every day. And if we don't go along with what they're asking for, we're already being branded as unjust, unkind, you know. And so the temptation is strong, well, let's modify the, the scripture, let's compromise a little bit for the sake of peace and unity and so on. And that has culminated in a recent, I don't know whether I mentioned this or not, a Lutheran World Federation and Vatican Declaration, that the Reformation was the mistake, and only the opinion of one man, and that it's over. Yeah. Of course. It's inevitable. If you abandon Sola Scriptura, forget the Reformation. On October 31, 2016, almost a year ago, the Pope, the present Pope and the Archbishop of the Lutheran Church of Sweden conducted a joint service in a Lutheran cathedral in Sweden. That would have been unthinkable fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. But you see, to abandon sola scriptura is to abandon the Reformation. And I, I'm wondering all along, is that what Professor Kukun and Is that why he said the ELCA is a Christless church? Luther taught that the Bible was the cradle in which Christ is laid. So if you abandon Sola Scriptura, you abandon Christ. How do, how do you identify the Christ you believe in and worship if it's not the Christ of Scripture? In the process, the Old and the New Testament are being disconnected. The law is being disconnected from the gospel. I can hear it when I listen to radio preachers. And in some case, it, it's being insisted that the Holy Spirit is doing new things in the church in our time. Have you heard that? Elevating the authority of of the Spirit above that of the written Word. Part of our mission as Seventh-day Adventists is to draw attention once again to Paul's And Luther's reverence for and reliance upon the scriptures. What does the Bible say? And I I remember vividly when I arrived at the seminary at Andrews University. This lady here remembers the very first day that I appeared. (laughs) It wasn't long before I enrolled in courses and everybody knew who was there. I was invited to attend on Wednesday evenings with a group of professors, a special gathering where we would discuss any subject that I wanted to talk about. The only stipulation was that I give them a week's notice in advance so that they could, you know, prepare, which is understandable. And I remember distinctly who was there, Dr. W. G. C. Murdoch, the dean that you worked for, Dr. Tom Blinko, who was chair of the theology department, Dr. Wilbur Alexander who was chair of the church and ministry department, Dr. C. Mervyn Maxwell, professor of church history, Dr. Hans-Laurendel, theologian. There may be one or two others, I can't remember their names. So that's what we did every Wednesday night. It was marvelous because no matter what the subject was, let's open the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? It was masterfully done and it hit me right here and right here because I was desperate to know the truth. You know, my personal question always was, was my wife really being deceived? I couldn't believe that either because she was a lifelong, faithful, lover of scripture. So part of our mission is to draw attention again to Paul's and Luther's reverence and reliance upon scripture. And Paul begins Romans by calling attention, chapter 1, verse 2, to the Holy Scriptures. Dealing with justification, he asks, chapter 4, verse 3, what does the Scripture say? In chapter 9, verse 6, he calls Scripture the Word of God. In making clear that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek with regard to salvation, he says, chapter 10, verse 11, the Scripture says. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It's in the scriptures, he says, that we find hope. He underscores the importance of the Jews. In chapter 11, verse 2, he says, God has not rejected his people, the Jews, Then he asks, do you not know what the scripture says? Chapter 15, verse 4, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Imagine the impact that passages like that had on Luther, who was struggling to find the way of salvation. And when it came to the authority that he claimed for the preaching of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul said unequivocally in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that it was in accordance with the scriptures. Now, throughout Romans and Corinthians, he uses the phrase, it is written at least 13 times. And whether Paul speaks about his development of the truth, doctrine, by the way, they mean the same thing. Some people say, don't preach doctrine, just tell me about Jesus. Well, you can't do that without talking about doctrine. The minute you mention the name Jesus Christ, you're talking about truth, doctrine. It's ridiculous you know, to say, don't, tell, don't talk about doctrine. So whether he talks about his development of the truth or the development of his own theological thought, or whether he's addressing issues in the early church, his reference always is to the scriptures. What does the Bible say? Now, contrast that today with trying to convince the church, the people of the church, that the Bible doesn't really say what it says. And believe me, I have read documents, thick documents, one of them over 800 pages trying to show why the Bible doesn't say what it says. If I had listened to that kind of argument back in the 70s, I wouldn't be here today. I would have fled from Andrew's, you know, in horror. So no wonder that so uh, deeply involved in the organizing of the early church, he said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 14, he says to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, why correction? Because if you're going in the wrong direction, you need to have your your you need to be rerouted, so you get the correction from the scriptures and for training in righteousness. That the man or messenger of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So Paul was the example for those like Timothy and Titus, and later Luther, who would take his place as spiritual leaders in the church. And it's on the basis of Scripture alone that both the qualifications for ministry and how the Spirit empowered equipping for ministry is revealed and accomplished. And what an example Paul was. Listen to Alan White, Acts of the Apostles, page 332. Fully convinced of the reality of the truth and trusted to him, nothing could induce Paul to handle the Word of God deceitfully or to conceal the convictions of his soul. He would not purchase wealth, honor, or pleasure by conformity to the opinions of the world, though in constant danger of martyrdom for the faith that he had preached. To the Corinthians. So it was in complete harmony with his faith in and reliance on the written word of God to leave as his legacy of apostolic instruction those resounding words from 2 Timothy 4 that I read to you earlier. Paul's charge. Now, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what the Bible tells us. And a steward is somebody who takes care of. And so, as stewards of the mysteries of God, it is our duty to pay close attention to Paul's charge to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6.20, when he tells him to guard the deposit, that is to say, the word, the doctrine, the truth that has been entrusted to us. What an awesome responsibility. 1 Timothy Timothy 6.20 we not only have the responsibility to preach the word, but we have the awesome responsibility to guard it, protect it, because he has entrusted it to his people. Concerning truth itself, Ellen White says, this is in Early Writings, page 96. She says, truth, quote, is straight, plain, clear, and stands out boldly in its own defense. By the way, when I have read the history of the Adventist movement, and read the story of the early pioneers how they started coming together out of many different Protestant backgrounds to study the Bible and eventually they are the ones that came up with the basic doctrinal or truth structure that forms the basis of Adventism today. I was struck by the fact that there was not one Ph.D. among them. (laughs) They were all lay people, like you. And it was the Holy Spirit that brought their minds together as they prayed over the Bible and studied the Bible that they came to these convictions. Now, I certainly believe that there's a place for academic training and graduate degrees, but let's not pat ourselves on the back. She exhorts all of us, members, pastors, evangelists, leaders, Scholars, teachers, as she says, to quote, "Let the plain, simple statements of the Word of God be food for the mind, specculous to this speculating upon ideas that are not clearly presented there is dangerous." business." Unquote. Early Writings, page 96. Well, we still have a few minutes, so I'm going to uh, move into my next presentation just to use up a little time. By the way, the first one was entitled, The Mission. The second one is entitled, The Times. I I was fascinated by Isaiah chapter 60, verse 22, which reads in the ESV translation, which is the one I'm using. It says, the least one that is to say, an insignificant person. The least one shall become a clan. Many. That's what a clan is. And the smallest one, a mighty nation, or a movement numbering into the thousands. My wife and I are amazed by the fact that since we became Adventists, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But during that time, the membership in this church has more than doubled. Fantastic. Worldwide growth. Which, by the way, is not reported anywhere that I've been able to see in the religious news of the world. It's not reported. But it's fantastic. Anyway, the verse ends. I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. When one becomes a clan, the smallest one, a mighty nation, or a movement that numbers into the thousands or millions, I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. Here in one verse, the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit allows us a little insight regarding God's choice of the right time and the right man or persons, because there were many, to make such a powerful impact on the world back in the 16th, 16th century that it has been felt up to our own time. Did you know that it was because of the Reformation that a lot of, these, a lot of religious people moved to this continent in order to get away from persecution? And out of that, milieu grew the ideas and the people that founded this nation and created the Constitution of the United States, which guarantees religious liberty. Because it's so clear, Congress shall make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the exercise thereof. Now, why did God choose the period in world history that we call the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages and the medieval period for that great event? Why did it happen then? Now, of course, people that lived then didn't call it that. Those labels were put on it later by historians. And why did he choose the man whose name was Martin Luther to light the flame? So tomorrow, we're going to start looking into that, see if we can find some answers to those questions. Why the time? And why the man? Can I have a volunteer to pray as we close? Oh, by the way, I wanted to read to you (coughs) a recent development. This was in the June 10th issue of our local newspaper up north. The Reverend Catherine A. Finnegan of Marquette, was elected May 23 to a six year term as Bishop of the Northern Great Lakes Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The election was held during the Synod Assembly May 21, 23 at Messiah Lutheran Church and Northern Michigan University. Finnegan will be installed as the Synod's fourth bishop on October 21 at St. Peter Catholic Cathedral in Marquette. The presiding bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Reverend Elizabeth Eaton, will participate in the service. Now the reason that struck me is because I know that under normal circumstances the presiding bishop of the denomination installs the newly elected bishops for local synods. But the report doesn't say that the presiding bishop is going to do the installing. It just says that the presiding bishop will participate. That's all it says. So I began to wonder who's going to install this Lutheran bishop at a service in a Catholic cathedral. Let me tell you, this is one way that the lay folks can be influenced to accept changes like that. A lot of Lutheran lay folks like you have no idea, I know because I talked to them, what's going on. In their own church, or the significance or meaning of it. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse dot org